0: This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. With a niche podcast like this, there's not much of a pathway to making money. There are so many advertisers that just would not fit with the tone of this show, and it's not a very smooth transition to go from talking about grief to then trying to sell you on a meal delivery service or a new mattress. So I decided that if I was going to put ads on the podcast, I'd have to be fully in control. And I was really lucky to join Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to sponsorship opportunities. On Podcorn's dashboard, I can browse and choose opportunities that fit the show, set my own rates, and then talk to the brands directly. Podcorn's mission to podcasters is to provide transparency, creative freedom, and full control on how and when we monetize our creative work, which is exactly what I needed for this show. So if you have a podcast and this sounds like something you'd be interested in, Click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where when the mood strikes apparently, I interview a new guest who has lost their parent, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead parent representation. What a wild ride we're on, huh? This is day, I don't know, 60-something of quarantine. This episode is now a time capsule to the COVID-19 pandemic, and what better way to celebrate isolation and uncertainty than with your favorite grief pop culture podcast. But I also wanted to give you grief buffs, an extra special treat on Mother's Day, this can be the cherry on top of your sundae. Sunday, Sunday is in the day of the week, because Mother's Day is on Sunday, you guys get it. Being disconnected from our regular outlets, I'm sure most of us really miss our community. the People who make us feel safe, understood, and heard. Since starting this podcast, I joined a grief community. I joined a grief group called The Dinner Party. But if you would have asked me to join a grief group 5, 10, 25 years ago, I would have said, absolutely not. Get the fuck away from me. And there is a big stigma around group therapy. It might not be for you right now or ever, which is totally fine. But it's just nice to know that these resources exist. Back in January, I gave a talk called Dead Parents and Pop Culture Therapy to Middlebury College's grief group, the Dead Parents Society. I chatted with a few college students in the bereavement group, and this is that episode. So there's not going to be a pop culture segment, but there will be three interviews. So, balance. I interviewed Om Gokhale and Ariadne Will together, both sophomores at Middlebury. So first, I asked them to introduce themselves and say the worst thing that somebody said to them about their parent passing. It was a fun exercise I picked up at my grief group.
1: Yeah, my name is Om Gokhale. I was six years old when my mom died of cancer. And the worst thing that anyone has said to me is asking like why I didn't go into cancer research as a result.
2: My name is Ariadne Will. I lost my dad when I was eight. The worst thing, and it's also interesting, like I've definitely like bookmarked like the best response I've ever had. I was in Guatemala with my Spanish class and we were like at dinner and one of the chaperones on the trip was like asking something and blah, blah, blah. He was like, oh, and your dad? And I was like, oh, like, my dad's dead. And he was like, yeah, like that really sucks. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and that was it was such a validating experience and yeah. not and not have to comfort the other person. Yeah. Yes. It was really nice.
1: So yeah, the year was I guess 2005. I was like woken up from my uh, preschool slumber by my uncle and he kind of held my hand as we walked up the stairs to my parents' bedroom and there she was. Uh, My mom was lying there on this massive, really tacky in hindsight circular bed that we have and all of my family was just standing around the bed. I think everybody had known, you know, she was going to go soon for a while. My grandparents were all the way in California from India. But I, at six years old, didn't really realize what was going on quite yet. So whereas everybody else was kind of like standing and I remember my older brother at 10, he was crying. I just kind of remember like biting on my fingernails. And then at one point, and this is a memory that I swear my dad is like implanted on me because I don't remember it for crap. I apparently like crawled into bed with her and like snuggled next to her until she passed away. So that was a really like weird death for me because I don't think I fully comprehended what was going on in the moment and as a result in the years following I definitely carried some sort of guilt for not properly grieving during that moment. I internalized a sensation that like because I didn't cry it must be for like the reason that maybe in some toxic way like some toxic masculinity oriented way I'm too manly to cry or I'm too tough to cry. And so I created this little narrative for myself where the only reason I wasn't sobbing out of control watching my mom die was because I was too freaking cool. And so like follow me into middle school and I'm like showing all my friends how to like do these fight moves, wrestling with them. I'm like doing that game where you like take a knife and you stick your hand on the table. Familiar. Yeah, yeah. And you like, you know, you go as fast as you can between the fingers. In general, I was just trying to show that like, not that I didn't feel pain, but that I was pretty much above it it would take a couple years. It would take me, you know, realizing that a lot of my closest relationships, I felt uncomfortable saying, I love you too. It would take, you know, just generally growing closer with my dad, I guess, for me to realize I was being a little bit of a, of an imbecile, um, in terms of equating all of this really traumatic experience to this totally made up sense of masculinity that I'd internalized. So it's only been recently the last couple years that I've like, even practiced being more vulnerable, admitted when I'm feeling sad or when I feel like crying. And I, I said, like, I love you to my dad for the first time just a couple years ago. So, yeah, that's where I'm at now. This like being vulnerable is brand new to me. So I'm still exploring this world. And how
0: does it feel? It
1: feels so much better. I, I have to admit, the most terrifying thing about that whole masculinity stint that I did during middle and high school is that people really like you for it. When you're, when you're a guy and you're able to kind of not show emotions um, and be stoic in your achievement, people will reward you for it. They'll say, oh, man, like, I wish I had Ohm's sense of resolve. And so I totally took that and I was like, yeah, I got to keep doing this. Um, If other people like it, it doesn't really matter that, you know, every time I do feel happy, it feels like there's this kind of shroud over that happiness because it's not truly me being happy. But that shroud's like, it's being lifted. Not all the time, but I'm like doing way better now.
2: Um, Yeah, so my dad died when I was eight. He was riding his bike home from band practice. I think my dad was in a band cause he was a cool guy. <laughs> um, you know, he had like long hair and like all the hair ties in the house were his and not my mom's. Um, but he was biking home. He was like biking past the McDonald's parking lot. McDonald's is one of like the three like chain things that we have in my hometown. Um, and this car was coming out and didn't see him and hit him and he fell off his bike, like cracked his skull, but he was wearing a helmet. So then he was in a coma for like a month. Like they medevaced him to Seattle. Cause that's, Again, like what happens when you live in a tiny little town. And so he was there, like I say, for about a month. And like my mom went down for a while and I stayed with my cousin. I have a lot of family in my hometown. This was like September of my third grade year. Early October, like my mom comes home and like I go home. We get this phone call and like I'd like gone to one end of the house. I think like to brush my teeth or something. So I always brush my teeth in my mom's bathroom. I think I knew then, actually, that like my mom had kind of been crying and I was like, oh, like, I know what this means. And I too didn't mm-hmm. cry and felt really weird about it yeah. for a while, especially cause like I remember like hugging my mom mm-hmm. and what a strange experience it is to be the child. And it's just, it's really been interesting growing up because my dad was a very charismatic person, was very mm-hmm. beloved by a lot of people in my hometown. Like I remember his memorial service, it was just filled with people. Like so many people, my mom didn't even know everyone there. I, I remember also like being like 12 and my my town like has a little artisans market for, for Christmas and stuff. And there was this woman there who was selling these little ornaments and I, like they were very pretty and I kept going over and like looking at them and she was like, oh, like, do you want one? Because she'd known my dad and like she cared about him that much that she wanted to give me this little, this little icicle glass ornament. And that's just been something that's really been interesting to navigate just all the time is like the ways that people act towards me because of who my father is. This was like right after my dad died and I'd like go and like hang out with the school counselor for an hour. And then there was like the Baranoff, Baranoff is the elementary school. Well, there were two elementary schools, <laughs> first town of 8,000, um, but there was the one that was K in first grade and then second through fifth. And I was at the second through fifth, obviously. But the counselor, she's wonderful from the other elementary school, would, like, come on, I think, Thursdays. Um, but I was really sad and it was a Monday. And I went down to the office to, like, see if she was there. And the secretary, he says, you know, um, Ariadne, like, no, Janine's not here today. Um, but did you know that, like, that my husband died in a boating accident when um, when my son was, like, X years old? And I think that was just such a such a pivotal moment because, like, there was that realization, that, like, oh, like, this is an experience that's real and that other people go through, even though, like, <laughs> it feels like I'm the only person in the world who is going through this right now.
1: My dad, to this day, is, like, the kindest man I've ever met. And it's so interesting hearing stories about him before my mom passed away because apparently he was, like, this total bad boy, like into motorcycles or mopeds, whatever they ride in India, like (laughs) like exact opposite of this almost serene Buddha-like man I see today. The way he handled my mom's death was going into meditation in a pretty significant way. So at this point he's meditating two hours every single day and it's completely changed him as a person. So like our dynamic went from, I remember the very beginning, um, kind of like Ariadne was mentioning, like this idea of hugging him to give him comfort. These days, like, he's just on a operating on a different plane, to be honest. So that was a complicated person to feel kind of extremely vulnerable around because I felt like he was doing such a good job, whereas I was making so many like juvenile mistakes and, you know, lashing out to others, or um, in in general, maybe not living in the way that like I my the idealized version of my mom would want me to. So then I thought of like my brother as perhaps the person I would be sharing this grief with. And he, in the same way that I fell into this pit of toxic masculinity, he did so too. And he's probably like who I learned it from. So he got really into this idea of learning to fight. And more so than me, he learned how to like stifle his emotions to the point where he admitted himself like, yeah, I'm a guy. I only get angry or nothing at all. And I was like, cool, big bro, let's do it. So like, I was kind of wandering around my childhood, like, you know, looking for someone to connect to because I think intrinsically, like I knew the whole time that the way I was approaching things, the way I was shoving a lot of my emotions deep down was not the right way to be doing it. The the way I found that out was actually my dad telling me a memory about hanging out with my mom and we were drawing together. Uh, We were doing colored pencils. The only thing I remember about that is how much better at drawing she was than me. And how cool it was that like she was drawing and that I was going to start drawing just like, you know, she used to. My dad would later tell me that like I was the one who started drawing uh, in the family and that she had picked it up uh, to do to do it with me. Which I was like, oh, man, that's like. Really... Yeah. So then by complete coincidence, it happened to be later on that it was my art teacher who would serve as kind of that mentor in terms of handling grief that I was looking for. Uh, my art teacher, her name is Carol and she's in her 60s now. Um she lost her father when she was 8 years old. And yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she's she's just this incredibly wise figure to the point of her telling me when I was about 12 years old that like life is not going to be happy in the way you want it to. But the upside of that is that's not just because your mom's dead. There's so many <laughs> other reasons. <laughs> and so yeah, that's really been the person who who have shared this grief with and it hasn't been a coexisting thing but more so she's been like a mentor to me.
2: Maybe you guys experience this too. Like I think sometimes I wonder if I'm forgetting what my dad looks like. Mm. Like over winter break I ended up getting access to this slideshow that my aunt had put together with the help of a lot of people um for his memorial service. And I was like looking through all these pictures and I was like, "Whoa." <laughs> for me it's really interesting like when I'm feeling perceived as negative emotion like very very deeply I I almost like go numb and like that's that's kind of what was happening but also like I I wanted to to see all these things and and I think it it did help it does help my grandfather died a year before my dad died and my dad was like the the manager of the estate at that point. So we ended up with all these bankers boxes and then, you know, he died the next year. And so we still had all these bankers boxes and then sat around for more years. And then like my mom eventually sent them off to my aunt. Um, But she kept all like the letters between my grandfather and my dad. And he always like made two copies of everything. So it was both parts of the letter. And I like this summer I read a bunch of those, which was really fascinating also because like a lot of them were written when he was like kind of my age. And I think, like that's the other thing like I just I have this hunger to fill in all the gaps in the narrative, but then it also you get really conflicted because then you have these answers, kind of, but then you're like, "Would I know these answers if he was alive, and like what would the how would the relationship differ And yeah, it gets really complicated <laughs> I'm definitely like a very curious person like. I'm pursuing journalism because I I want to ask people questions and and hear what they have to say. And yeah.
1: Yeah, I really liked what you said about like searching through your dad's like letters and photos. So if like the dead parent society was my chance at like trying to practice being vulnerable with others, I'd say before I could get there, I definitely needed to try and be vulnerable with myself for the longest time like the whole stoic ohm thing almost worked like it almost tricked me into thinking that all of those things I told myself about myself were true because like it's it's true. I hadn't cried in a really long time. like I couldn't remember the last time I had. Um, I hadn't you know I hadn't like sat down in my room and been really sad in a really long time. I felt that because I was doing such a good job of like taking every negative emotion I felt and putting it in some weird ass like Amazon package miles away, that maybe like I was actually over my mom's death. It wasn't until I was 15 or 16, it was May, and my older brother kind of knocked on my room and he kind of poked his little head in and immediately you could tell that he was himself in a really uncomfortable space right now. And he said, like, hey, man, um, listen, uh, it's the 10th anniversary of mom's death and, like, well, I'm just not really ready to go into this right now she left us a letter for us to open today. I haven't read it. I don't think I'm gonna be ready to read it for a while. But like, maybe if you if you want to, it's it's on my desk. And like immediately, here was this guy who I always thought was this like freaking statue of the U.S. Marines, being incredibly vulnerable with me, telling telling me that he's not ready to read something our mom wrote us. But of course, like once he gave me that kind of dare, I absolutely had to. And I remember this is this is just an odd memory from that day. I. I showered before I read it. I I, I showered and I changed and um, like I don't know. I, I I think I ate something. I wanted to make sure I was like pure in some in some weird way um, before I read this thing from a person that, to be honest, I never really knew very well. So I walk into that room. I sit at his desk, and I open the letter. And I'm like, oh, easy peasy. I can read. Like I learned how to do that. I'm I'm going through how she talks about my dad. And she's describing a completely different person than I ever knew. This really charismatic, outgoing, um, almost cocky guy. Then she's talking about my brother. To him, it's addressed to him, telling him how proud she is of him and how you know he needs to protect the world. And then she gets to me, and because I'm you know pretty squishy and useless at that point, at the point <laughs> she's writing it, she doesn't say much about me. She just writes to my brother like, "Take care of him." And just knowing that her hand had written the word "him" in referring to me completely shattered me. Sitting in my brother's room, like I broke down in tears for the first time I'd ever really, in like I could ever remember. Um, and it was that moment I'd say where I realized, like, all of those lies I'd told myself about getting over it, and perhaps even being ready to like completely devote myself to helping other people get over their pity, like, petty problems weren't entirely true. I had a lot of shit to work on.
2: It was the activities fair last year. Yeah, like the first week that we were here. And this girl in my hall was like, Ariadne, your dad's dead. You should join <laughs> Dead Parent Society. And I was like, what? And she's like, the the girl that I like stayed with for preview days was in it. And she said that it was really great. And so you should join. And I was like, okay, you know, like, why not? Yeah. Um. So I did.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting hearing about how, like how the club started. So we are pro- I think we're the first generation of students that um, has been here since the founders actually graduated. But the way they started the club was they all wrote their Common App application essays about losing their parents by complete coincidence, and one day they decided to like get drunk and sit in a circle and like read them out to each other. So then they started the Dead Parent Society. But by the time like Ariadne and I got there it wasn't about getting drunk and reading common app essays. Like we just saw this idea of getting to be vulnerable about this thing that most people look at you weird for being vulnerable about. So for me, it was like, this is totally weird and not my speed just from the sign alone. But like, how could I pass up on an opportunity to go with something this specific and this relevant? First thing I remember is this really, really funny. All three of the founders were comedians. And so I was going in expecting this kind of like somber, like everyone going around sharing. Um, I'd never been to a grief group before, but I had this expectation of it that it was gonna be just a depressing time. But it was honestly the hardest I'd laughed in a while. There's almost like in my in my sociology class, we're learning about like Emile Durkheim and this idea that like there are things called social currents where when you get in a group with people, this new kind of group mind takes over and it takes you to places that you never would have gone on your own. And I feel like the Dead Parent Society pulled some of the like darkest humor and like weird raw vulnerability out of me that I'd ever experienced. So, so funny in the way I didn't expect.
2: I think honestly it was just nice to be in a space where I could say, you know, like my dad's dead and it didn't feel like an earthquake. Yeah. I remember like everyone talking about the intensity of their depression and that was not something that i related to i remember i think like omen we left and we went back to our dorm because we were living in the same dorm that year we are like wow like we lost our parents at the youngest age and in some ways we're like we were like the most well-adjusted people in that room and yeah and that was just a really interesting realization Mm
1: -hmm. so the group has i'm not sure how the group has changed so much as perhaps like expanded i think it's still funny um it goes from like laughing to like intense tears pretty quickly. But, you know, more recently, we've been trying to include people that, you know, haven't necessarily lost someone like in a physical way, but perhaps, you know, the parent left when they're young or there was abuse or drug use in the family. And as a result, like for me personally, at least, that group, that group session has become much more like uncharted territory. I feel like I know how to talk about dead moms, but I don't know how to talk about abuse. Um, So I'm suddenly like, relearning how to be vulnerable in that way because I totally like, I totally did have to do that when I was six, but I haven't had to do that in in 12 plus years. Another thing for me personally was I kind of got to practice all of the things that I like was hoping I'd learned over the course of processing my grief. The cool thing about the Dead Parent Society is you can talk to people almost as if like they are, almost as if like you're, you're practicing talking to the real world about your grief, I guess, um, because they know how hard it is to talk about and they know how hard it is to even like feel like you're thinking about properly. M- most recently, my stepmom, who um, entered my family when I was about seven or about a year after my mom died, she also got diagnosed with cancer in this kind of like, ah, karma, screw you world way. And that was incredibly tough for me. And I'm so confident that four years ago, middle school or high school um, so invested in being stoic would have kept that to himself. He would have kept to himself that that like really sucked emotionally or how, you know, all the feelings that he had when he was six years old are coming up to make him feel like a toddler again in college. But the Dead Parent Society was this kind of like weird vacuum where it was totally okay to say something like that and practice saying something like that where I could take my still developing sense of vulnerability And perhaps give it a shot with people who I know won't think I'm weird for talking about, like, dead people.
2: I mean, yeah, it's definitely nice, like, having a group of people where it's like, hi, like, we can all talk about our dead parents (laughs) and our trauma, our very specific trauma. I feel like it's, it doesn't feel like I'm being overly vulnerable with that group. Like, I think I am... Either I am or I masquerade as a pretty vulnerable vulnerable person most of the time. It's pretty easy for me to talk about most things and a lot of things that I think a lot of people feel are personal things. But like if, if I talk about something there, like it doesn't feel like I'm oversharing.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's this in addition to that, there's this like weird effect where by virtue of being in that club, you immediately have this like deep, deep thing in common with everybody else. So you're almost like instantly really close friends with them. I remember seeing this this um, girl in one of my classes that I'd noticed had been not in many of my classes, like she'd been skipping class um, over the past semester. And I had always wondered why until she showed up on the first day of Dead Parent Society. And we kind of had this like weird like Fast and Furious 6 type Vin Diesel nod to each other <laughs> where we instantly both understood that like, there was something deeper than a superficial relationship here like I still don't you know I'm still not super close with a lot of the members of dead parent society outside of that club context but the second you step in there you feel like you're talking to your best friend after a really long time
2: I think it sounds like there's a lot of potential like it's called a grief group like it's just people wallowing in their pain and that's like so not what it is because no one wants to wallow in their pain and just be like sad all the time
1: A lot of people are in the same boat as you in terms of like feeling weird about joining a grief group and not wanting to be depressed. The other thing that I noticed as well was that there, I feel there can be like two reasons why someone won't join a grief group. The first is because they feel like they don't need it per se and that they're, you know, maybe way past it and that, you know, they can um, do better things with their time. And then the other is um, they're not ready for it. And they're not ready to experience that sort of like trauma um, in such close context. To the first one, I'll say that like if you are feeling so confident about, you know, how well you've overcome your own grief, like this is a great chance to help others. That was what drew me to the Dead Parent Society in the first place. I saw the sign. I thought I was so well adjusted that I couldn't possibly need this place. I show up with the intention of wanting to help others, but At the end of it, I found myself growing so much emotionally healthier as a result. And then to the people that are kind of feeling concerned about entering that environment when they feel like maybe they're not ready, that's really valid. Like, I'm not going to say that you should push yourself outside of your comfort zone. At the same time, if your current comfort zone is being really, really depressed all the time, this might be like a cool thing to try. If you feel like this is so hard to carry on your own, Imagine having many other shoulders that are carrying it with you.
0: And for the second half of the episode, I remotely recorded with Julie Dos Santos, president of the Middlebury College Dead Parents Society. Julie is the youngest of seven kids and lost both her mom and her dad before the age of 20.
3: My name is Jilly Dos Santos, I'm 23, and I was 9 when my mom died, and I was 19 when my dad died. I think for my mom, it was kind of just the silence that we didn't say anything about it, ever, and no one that we knew did. Uh, Right after my dad died, I went immediately, like within three weeks to go do a summer program at Middlebury College for their language school for Spanish. Clearly wasn't ready for that. And so just spent a lot of time like sad and moping and not being social or not always going to class. And I had to talk to the director or the, I don't know, he wasn't the director, but some sort of official dude in the program. He suggested that I maybe like drop out of the program and go home. Like he was like, well, your dad just said like maybe she should go home. And I was like, well, like I, you know, I, I can't go home cause I don't have a place to stay. And he said, well, like, well, where's your mom? And I was like, well, she's also dead. And he was like, wow, like you really have no options. Like you've really got nothing, do you? And I was like, yeah, I've, <laughs> oh my uh, God. I've really got nothing. Thank you for <laughs> hammering that in. So I was nine when she died. Up until that point, I think I was pretty clueless in terms of knowing the severity of her condition. She had ovarian cancer and was diagnosed uh, stage four about a year or so, maybe less than before she died. I kind of didn't really consider that as an outcome and would just enjoy like going to the hospital and like eating all the food that she couldn't eat when she had chemotherapy. Then there was like this one day that I remember my dad kind of like calling me up to his room to talk. He told me, you know, your mom is really sick. You know, there's a chance now that she might not get better. He also didn't really communicate how quickly she would not get better. So I think it was like that night or the next night, we went to the hospital. I'm one of seven, so the whole troop, she was sedated. Yeah, and that was pretty late at night and we stayed there for a while. Before we were leaving, I noticed there were like these boxes outside of her room that had like the date on them for the the different equipment that came from Central Services or whatever. And it said February 27th, and I didn't know what day it was. So I was like, how long have these boxes been here? <laughs> like I wanted to know what day it was that I the last time I would see her. But I was too afraid to ask anybody because I didn't want to highlight the fact of like, this is the last time that we're gonna see her alive. The next day at school, I just remember really knowing in the pit of my stomach that she had died, but not having been told that yet. And then coming home from school that day, I think it was my aunt who told us that she had died. My twin sister kind of instantly crying, like bursting into tears and everything. and. I'm much more of a pinned up about my emotions or pent up emotions, I guess. I remember thinking like, oh, I better cry now. (laughs) Like, I gotta perform for this. Immediately after being told and uh, like fake crying on the couch in the kitchen, going on a walk with, and and not to be like fake crying because like (laughs) I didn't care, but just like not being able to cry. I remember being very much, it felt like like a relief. It felt like I knew, like I knew she was dead and finally someone's told me. So now I don't have to have that, that confusion. Cause I just remember thinking like, I just, whatever this confusion is, this anxiety, I want this to be over, even if it's the worst case scenario answer. I honestly don't remember a lot of the rest of that day, but in terms of the first few weeks after, I, know, I remember we didn't go to school which was exciting. I remember playing tennis. I remember my, uh, like the guidance counselor at school, like driving to our house. And we were like in the driveway having like a mock game of tennis, my sister and I. And I was just like embarrassed, I guess, or like sheepish because it felt like, oh, like these outside people coming from school, like that means everyone at school knows. And that means people are gonna be asking me questions uh, that I don't want to answer. I didn't want to dwell in my feelings because I saw how sad the rest of my family was and how devastated my dad was in particular. I was the one, you know, at the visitation, starting the game of hide and seek (laughs) and otherwise getting in trouble and trying to keep things light. And I remember it kind of feeling like, I don't ever want to talk about this again. So can we just wrap it up already? My response, historically speaking to sort of when everyone else is freaking out, is to try to downplay, or, or, or like, not forget everyone else, like if I'm going through a crisis, definitely I will downplay the importance of it and try to use positive thinking or humor or whatever to negate the negative emotions or the sadness. And I think it, partially it's because being the younger one, you're not necessarily at an age where, and at least in my mind, having experienced grief later in life, where you really fully understand what death means when you're older and you don't necessarily when you're younger and so for me what that meant is that like i was definitely sad but i don't think i i didn't really know the full depth of grief it, that kind of came as i got older i just saw other people other like teenagers and my father and my aunt and uncle going through that grief and thought like I want no part in this. (laughs) This I don't want to make things worse. I think I was definitely offered resources that I then did a really good job of convincing people I didn't need. Like the counselor whose dog was named Sigmund Freud or Siggy for short, she had like a grief group for other students who had lost parents. And my sister went, my twin sister, I went one day and I thought it was just the absolute worst thing in the world, like the worst use of time. I just, I, again, like I was just such in the mindset of like, why would I sit here and be sad? Like we could be throwing around gushers in the lunchroom. Like that's so much more fun. (laughs) In my house, definitely. I don't think there was a lot of emotional support. I think that I was sort of identified as, and grew up with the, the label as like the strong one. And so people didn't necessarily think of my feelings or of of what I needed, because I just seemed so fine all the time. And for the most part, I was. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started thinking, like, maybe I'm not fine. (laughs) When I was in ninth grade, a few months after I turned 15, my dad had a series of strokes. And that kind of turned my life completely upside down, going from a one-parent household that was already pretty hectic and pretty... Uh, like, you know, he'd come home from work and be like, okay, dinner tonight is every man for himself. There's the fridge. Here's the groceries. (laughs) To, you know, being pretty alone, having to be really self-sufficient for the next year and a half or two years or so, my dad's health kind of swung back and forth. And so he was living with us in the house and he was working because, uh, unfortunately The ways that he chose and that my older siblings chose to manage finances as adult children meant that he had to to support them or chose to support them. And so he kind of could not not work. I was on a, a birthday trip to Chicago with a friend and my sister and my friend's mom. And my dad was rushed to the hospital because of some blood pressure thing or something like that. And the decision was made that that he needed to, to have full-time care. Prior to that, it was essentially me, my sister, and whatever stray sibling was around at any given moment to take care of elderly stroke patient, <laughs> so it was it was not a great environment in terms of caring for his health. And so it was necessary for him to move into full-time care in a nursing home. But of course, this is like my junior year in high school. So it was like a really weird situation. I definitely couldn't relate to any sort of common ground in terms of what people's home lives or relationships to their, their families and their parents. I did whatever I wanted and i was a responsible kid because my older siblings weren't had not been responsible kids so it worked out for me I, I couldn't i couldn't understand like other ways that people lived i guess and i think the worst thing about it was how it was so difficult for me to to see my dad in a nursing home because he was mentally completely there like it, it was it wasn't a a, a cognitive declined that put him in a nursing home. It was just the really severe physical ailments he had. And he ended up having to have a leg amputated because uh, he had diabetes that wasn't kept in check by his 16-year-old daughter nurses, right? (laughs) And, And he was a psychiatrist. So he was like this really brilliant guy, really funny. And then with people who were, you know, 20 years older than him and couldn't remember what their name was. So visiting him was sad and and so I often didn't because it was just so brutal. And, and I lost a lot of time because of that. So he in total was in the nursing home for, I guess like two and a half years. One year of that or, or nine months or, or 10 months of that was me in my freshman year of college in Vermont. One interesting thing about my family dynamic growing up was that even though I was labeled like the responsible one and the strong one, I was also the youngest. So I didn't, I didn't get to have any, any sort of say or any real influence in, in big decisions, even when they were being led by the people labeled the irresponsible ones. <laughs> so I didn't really know much about his health at all that spring semester um, when I was uh, 19 in 2016. And then during the last month or so of the semester, He would call me occasionally and be really out of it, like never had a cognitive issue in his life. And then he'd call me and say he was driving to Jefferson City. Later, come to find out it's because he was on a lot of pain medications from a lot of surgeries and infections that he had been having and then getting back and then having treatment and then being in a lot of pain. And so the the amount of medication he was on made his his cognitive ability is kind of out of whack. Then during finals, I received a a 27 second phone call. I know it's not 27 seconds, but that's the amount of time that Joe Jonas broke up with Taylor Swift in in their breakup phone call back in the day. So I'm gonna use that number because it's in my head. So a 27 second voicemail um, from my oldest brother saying like, Hey, so. How's it going? I don't care, dad's on hospice, talk to you later, bye. And so that's how I found out things were were not treating, not treating to cure, but going with comfort and palliative care. When I got back to Missouri, the, the day that I went and visited him, the first day I was back in Columbia, I went with my sister. The second we walked in the room, he just started bawling completely without tears which is an interesting thing that old people do. Now that I work in elder care, I see it a lot, actually. But he was bawling, um, and he told us that he thought that he was never going to see us again mm. um, because I was so far away. And my sister, too, I remember that kind of being the moment, realizing that, oh, shit, like, he's actually going to die this time. Because there were so many times before then that we had been told, like, you know, brace yourself for the worst, like your dad's going to die. So like all through growing up, like my dad would say, and it's so funny, he was a child psychologist, and there's so many things like he just categorically should not have said. So actually, maybe the, you can cut this to the beginning of my section. (laughs) just, um, the worst thing anyone ever said to me about uh, death was, how my dad would occasionally say, after my mom died, Well, I just hope that I can make it until you guys are eighteen. <laughs> it was just like there's a constant specter of death in my household. <laughs> but it clicked that um that day, that visit when I saw him, that that he was gonna die. And it was just kind of a matter of when. I remember just thinking, like, we should take some photos. <laughs> I'm wearing a good outfit today, <laughs> um, which, is re- which is relevant because my dad and I uh, shared style as a common interest. So uh, I always made sure to be putting on my best when I visited him. That night, my my dad's brother was visiting from Paraguay because my dad was from Argentina. It's like after I saw him, I kind of talked myself down like, no, no, like he's not gonna die. And then, all through this dinner with my uncle, who I've met, like, once <laughs> in my life before, he's just, like, him and his wife are just, like, vaguely alluding to the fact that my, my dad is going to die, but, like, no one's going to say it. At the end, he and his wife, like, pressed, like, $40 into my sister and mine's hands, like, when they said goodbye, and I was like, oh, thank you, like, this will last. <laughs> Got the clothes on my back and the $40 from Paraguay, like, thanks. It was a few days later, he still was still kicking. <laughs> my siblings at that point were in town at the family house. If it hasn't been like clear, there's a family rift, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, um, which is common with trauma. My sister and I were united front, twins, womb to tomb, and the five older siblings, there's just been some things over the years and that you realize it's it's okay not to have toxic people in your life even if they are your family. And so when they came to town then, while my father was dying, it sort of created heightened anxiety, not necessarily conflict, but not the sort of banding together, kumbaya experience that uh, a lot of families have when someone is 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 dying. So I remember getting a call from the nursing home. So I, I go upstairs to get my sister to come with me. Uh, and at that point, all my older siblings were there. Uh, you know, I told my sister that, you know, I just got this call, like, it's looking like dad's not gonna survive the night, like we should get down there she didn't believe me and she didn't want to go be around the siblings if it wasn't absolutely necessary. You know, if it wasn't, he's if, it, he was, if he wasn't for certain he was gonna die that night and she didn't believe he was gonna die that night, therefore there's no reason to go there at this moment. Let's go tomorrow during the day when no one's there. And I think just a lot of that coming out from denial because my sister and my dad were really close. And so then I was sort of faced with this choice of, do I go see my dad? And it's maybe the last time I will ever see him alive. Leave my twin sister alone in that moment and have her live with the guilt of not seeing her father in his dying moments and being the only one who didn't, and not because of a lack of relationship, (laughs) they had a very close relationship, or do I never see my dad again so I kind of made in my mind like he would understand um because if if he was going to die then it would just be me and her and I couldn't there's no way I could leave her alone and let her live with that so I decided to stay and just calling in all sorts of backup like any friend any friend's parents like please come help me convince her to come. (laughs) Because I just, I couldn't leave her, but I just could not imagine not seeing him again. Thankfully, my friend's mom came. She's incredible. And um, she just really plainly told my sister, your dad is going to die tonight and you will regret it if you don't see him you have it in you to go see him like you're strong enough to do it it's gonna be sad it's gonna be painful but this is happening and my sister just fell to the floor and was sobbing and but we we succeed (laughs) we succeed everyone's on board dad is dying (laughs) Uh, um and and we go there um, to the nursing home. He has a lot of morphine, because at this point he's on hospice and they just really load you up. <laughs> he was not making a lot of sense and then speaking in Spanish. And um, I'm the only one of my siblings who speaks Spanish. We've never learned it at home and I learned it at school. And so I'm in this room feeling all these really intense emotions. There's like my dying father <laughs> lying down Everything he says in Spanish is incomprehensible to everyone else. And so everyone is looking at me to translate. Half of the things he's saying don't even make sense or or they're referring to things that that I would just I would just my mind would never go there because like what are you talking about are, are the guns unloaded? We don't have any guns here. Like or like that's not my vocab <laughs> word. This was early, this is my freshman year, not my senior year. My Spanish wasn't that good. It was just it was just a very bizarre situation even if in the moment I was just sort of so stricken with everything that I was unable to repeat the things that were said. I mean, nothing was like wild. It was not like, like family secrets were spoken, but I just, I could not interpret at that moment. But it was also kind of nice to, to have that with my like a private thing, I guess, with my dad, even though it was like mostly gibberish. That was the last time that I saw him alive. My dad was also a really affectionate person, um, like, always hugging, kissing. Yeah, he's, he's from Latin America, and um, they, they do, like, the cheek kiss and everything. But when we were, like, really little, my sister, like, with all the, the children, like, when we were, like, babies and everything, we were like, kiss on the lips. And then with my sister and I, it just like never stopped. <laughs> so it was this kind of weird thing where I was like, yeah, I kissed my dad on the lips. Like I'm that SNL skit, whatever that that's me and my dad. <laughs> uh, um, so I did not kiss my dead dad on the lips, but, but I bring this up to say <laughs> that um, he was just so affectionate. So like going over and um, giving him a hug, it was just the strangest, strangest phenomenon the strangest feeling to like feel his body um but not him and to not hear any heartbeat because he was a really tall guy and was very broad-shouldered um a bit of a belly and so when you know when you would hug him it was just like it's the only sensation you would feel was like his arms around you and his chest. And he was often sitting down because he used to wheelchair in the last years of his life. So when I would hug, I'd lean down and it was more like my head would be on his chest. So when I leaned down to hug him, that's got the automatic sort of position that I was in. My head wasn't by his head, it was on his chest and there was no heartbeat. I knew I just, I wanted to be with a friend but I didn't want to talk about anything I've got this great friend named Emily Vu. And so I texted her and I went over to her house at like 11 o'clock, which normally would be totally forbidden under her parents' rules. To this day, I don't know if they actually knew I came over. She just made me some some fancy ramen and we like watched Friends or something like that and talked about everything other than my dad dying. (laughs) I mean, she knew, I told her, but... Just having that having that mechanism coping mechanism of not thinking about sad things, that's what we did. just distraction. I definitely the first um, two years just n- kind of never spoke of it and was just very depressed, grieving, and then undercutting the the importance of letting myself grieve and so during my junior fall this would have been i guess a year and a half after my dad died i decided to take a semester off because i was just so incredibly depressed just like a shell of a person i was living in buenos aires at the time during my my year abroad um, and i was living with actually my cousin met him for the first time as an adult when he came to my dad's funeral because he and my dad were really close and instantly hit it off like he's, he's incredible there's no magic solution for skipping grieving. You have to actually do it. And so just being around people who loved me was not enough. And so I took a semester off and in that time stayed in Buenos Aires and uh, found a really amazing uh, therapist there. Just worked on the trauma of losing both my parents by the time I was 19 and of living on my own as a teenager, essentially. Something that I, I realized in working with her was that, like, no wonder it's so hard for me to talk about the loss of it all, when I I, I wouldn't even mention my parents in passing to people. If, if friends were talking about anything about their parents, like, I would, I was just not in that conversation. Like, I would listen to them, I'd ask them lots of questions so they wouldn't ask me anything. And if they did ask me anything, I'd lie. It took kind of realizing that and then bringing them up in regular conversation and allowing myself to acknowledge that they existed. And that talking about them did not have to be talking about their, their deaths. So then by the time I got back to Middlebury College, I had a friend who was in dead parent society at Middlebury, and she was an officer in the club. We had been friends, but I think neither of us knew or neither of us, I didn't know that, that she had a dead parent. I have no idea if she knew if I had a dead parent, but we'd never talked about it and I just decided to start going and it was really terrifying at first because I'd never done anything like it, in spite of the amount of things i'm I'm just like <laughs> freely spilling right now. um I often feel a little weird, even when i even today like when I'm talking about my parents because it's both of them, so even there, I felt like, God, like, what a burden And I'm taking up so much space. Like, it's uh, typically the way a meeting um, would start is you'd go around and say your name and say how old you were um, when someone who you knew or you were in your family who when they died. And it would get to me, and I'd say both. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, it's when everyone in the grief group is pitying you. <laughs> it's just like... Uh, it's a, Or when you feel they are, like, who knows if they even are? Like, it took a long time for me to accept the fact that someone could say, I'm I'm sorry that you went through that, and they weren't pitying you or like, that it was genuine, it was genuine feeling. Like, I just, I don't know, I have such a weird relationship with people feeling bad for me. I think because there's so many opportunities for them to feel bad for me. <laughs> so I don't like it. Um, so it, it took a long time to get comfortable but once i did i just i really really valued having that space and hearing from other people i think that was the biggest thing other people's experiences even when i wouldn't say a word just to to know that they had felt some things that i had or that there were so many different ways to feel grief and so whatever the hell i was doing was probably fine it really helped it really helped to to have a community of people who'd been through similar things. There was room for levity and joking around and things that you can't say to other people. And that's something that I really appreciated. When I when I found out I got into grad school and that I I got big money scholarship, I was really just kind of sad all day and I didn't really get why. I just felt very melancholy. And at the end of the day, I just kind of had to start journaling. And then it was like, oh, that's right, because my dad's dead and my mom's dead and this amazing thing happened and I don't get to tell them. And that sucks and that shouldn't be my reality. And, and it really helps and I feel better afterwards and, and I feel more connected to my parents and, and to my emotions when I do things like that. It isn't for everybody. So like I was someone who totally. who, who th- I thought it wasn't for me. And then I became the president. <laughs> so, um, I... I <laughs> a good grief group will never hold you to a commitment to coming to every meeting or talking in every meeting or sharing whatever you're thinking or feeling in that moment. Give any grief group around you the benefit of the doubt that it is indeed a good grief group and know that you can go and just Sit there and you don't, you just you don't have to say anything. There's just something you get out of community that is so valuable, especially as a young person. I've found that there's been many scenarios in which I'm realizing all these different life events that bring up my grief. And then and maybe in some that even necessitate a decision. So, like if I'm meeting my boyfriend's parents for the first time. And they ask about my parents, how do I navigate that? And if you're in a grief group, you can go and talk to people who have those same anxieties or have dealt with other things like that um, and can can help you work through that. Again, like there's some super sick dead parent jokes that go by and you, you really shouldn't miss that. <laughs> you know, one thing that being a part of Dead Parent Society has helped me is, is to foster curiosity about my parents' lives and to not feel that I can't ask things because I might make someone else sad or uncomfortable um, or that I might make myself sad and uncomfortable and not know how to deal with it. When your parent dies when you're young, there's so many things that you just will never know about them. And when both of your parents die, there's just so many things you don't even know about your own life as well. Um, Like my early, early childhood, I feel so grateful that I've learned how to express grief alone with myself and with other people so that I can hopefully keep having moments and keep making new memories of my dad, if not with my dad. So maybe that's my biggest endorsement. Get used to talking with people about grief because it can lead to some really cool things.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about om Ariadne, jilly and the Dead Parent Society, check out the show notes. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27 Ash, B R I T T two Seven A S H. The music is by interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna.